The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Well, we have been in this series, um, and over the last few weeks, we've taken time to, to, to look at the, 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 these early accounts of when Jesus arrives on the scene and he calls his disciples. Those very first followers that end up becoming pivotal on this movement that will, that will turn the world upside down. And we see that they're not anything special. They're, they're not particularly really the cream of the crop for that matter. But that's not really what matters. So we saw that there's this sense of, uh, of John, the kind of an early forerunner who, who people have been gathering towards. And he says, look, there is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. In other words, there is the one who can, who can fundamentally put us Right in ways that we cannot do on our own, and yet there is in Jesus this this sense of forgiveness, this sense of being restored in relationship with the, the holy God, and yet it doesn't stop there. That 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 we're called to to follow. That there's a promise. There's a promise of transformation. There, there's a a promise that God is going to do something in and through us. And not only that, He's actually included us. He says, "I want to I want to turn you into someone that you cannot be." On your own. That, that this constant call to follow me goes throughout our whole lives deeper and deeper. As we are changed from the inside out. And, and not only that, that Jesus wants to be able to say, listen, I, I want you to know that, that I'm not just for someday, I'm for today. That, that I want to be the master of your life because I want you to know that, that I can handle what you are facing right now. In fact, until you get that, you're not going to know me as, as Lord of everything. Until you know me as master or captain uh, of this moment. And so we've looked at this because as we've thought about what does it mean to follow it, like it's, in some ways we're kind of going back to basics. Let's not remember the foundations uh, before we were to launch out into whatever faith looks like. Well, as we've as we spent time doing this, in a lot of ways, what, what Jesus has been speaking through the disciples and through these interactions to us is, is, is in some ways a very personal message. It's a, it's a private message for us. It's a, it's a message of hope that, that makes our, our, our heart come alive. And yet the question then is, well, does faith stay there? Well, what happens if, if, if we wanted to take it outside of our own personal private lives? If we wanted to even take it outside of this room? Could it go somewhere beyond this? What does it look like when we push it into the, the public sphere? What happens if we want to we want to take the, the 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 good news that we have experienced, the the sense of love and power? And forget. What if we wanted to share that wider? What does that look like? Well, that's what we're going to be taking some time over the next few weeks by looking at a, a book in the Old Testament called uh, Nehemiah. The thing is, that question of moving from the, the private out is one with, that's fraught with danger, isn't it? Right? Because we all have had those, those times in which it seems like maybe people, let's assume that people are people of goodwill, but it just seems like it goes off wrong, right? Unfortunately, sometimes when it looks like taking faith private is that you have someone who stands on a street corner, the big sign that basically says, you're going to hell and God hates you. And that's somehow supposed to be good news, and, and right? We don't really know what to do with that. I mean, every year when I was up at Western, every year there was a guy, I mean, he was faithful, and he came, and he would come, and he'd yell at you on your way to class, right? Good news. 
Right? I mean, it's basically he's going by. You suck. Just letting you know. You know, at some point you go, is that, is that what it looks like? And, and, and so we've seen it sometimes done badly. Maybe we've, we, we've, we've had, maybe, again, let's assume good nature, that, that there are those who have tried to, trying to take faith and sort of pull it into the public sphere, and yet we've been the recipients of that, and that's been not a blessing to us, but often more of a, a, of a negative thing. And so what we do is then we, we pull back that, that we think, well, maybe what we just need to do is we need to keep it private. And so we pull back, and it just becomes a, a, a very private and personal thing, and that's, that's good. And yet there's something anemic about that. There's something that, that we know that there's got to be more. It becomes, it becomes shrunken. Well, Nehemiah helps us, I think, in this. It, it's a complicated issue. I'll say that. Faith is, and life is a complicated issue. And yet, Nehemiah actually helps us, gives some, some focus on what does it mean for us to, to, to move forward. And, and we're going to look at, really, Nehemiah 1 tonight. And, and what we learn is two things. That are, they seem contradictory, but, but they're these things. That we have to expand our vision and keep our vision big. But then within that, find our specific place. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you... Turn to Nehemiah 1. It'll be up on the screen, but Nehemiah 1, it, it's uh, kind of early on in the Bible. It's before uh, Psalms. Uh, if you have to flip around, don't worry about it. I have to flip around sometimes too to find it. But Nehemiah 1, I'm going to begin in verse 1, and then we'll, we'll read through. And I'm going to focus just kind of on the, on the first uh, six, uh, four verses uh, tonight. Let, let me actually pray. Lord, I, I would pray that you know, these words that we read... Uh, Lord, crazy as it seems, we actually believe that maybe they have something to say to us today. Uh, even though these are written thousands of years ago in a culture very, very different than ours. And, and yet, Lord, the only reason that's true is because perhaps there's something universal that is captured within them. And that, that the same spirit that inspired these words through a particular author actually might speak to us. Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to us by your spirit uh, this evening. Amen. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was at the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Well, who is this guy, Nehemiah? We're going to look into some specifics next week and as we continue on. But but the outlines are essentially that, that the nation of Israel has just been dominated by a number of uh, countries that have come through, and it's been broken up into pieces, and it's just been—it's been absolutely just worked. Jerusalem is in disarray, and, and and what we hear is we get kind of sort of the journal of this guy Nehemiah. Nehemiah is actually living in a in a foreign land, and and he, as we have read, he's got this sense, he's got this burden, and so really it's the working out of this uh, burden. And so it has become one of these kind of things where you go, it sounds like a journal, and yet there's, there's all these interesting things that go in there. So what we get to do is we get to look at Nehemiah, look from his, at his example. You know, you just say, what does that look like perhaps for me? Does that translate at all? And 
Uh, so Nehemiah's book, it's, it's after uh, this exile in which we begin to see this sort of a, a rebuilding uh, of a country, and specifically Jerusalem, a city that has just been absolutely uh, dominated. Often, Nehemiah is connected with this idea of wall building. We, we read in here that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down. And walls are a funny thing, aren't they? You know, he's the wall builder. Right? I don't know that we actually feel like I see walls very often um, here. I, you know, I actually travel around Europe, and that was the time when I actually, that was the time, I just felt like I saw walls everywhere. If you guys, any of you have traveled, I had the privilege to be able to travel uh, for a time in the, in the summer and spring of 1995, and I did it with three friends. And if you want to know who good friends are, you travel with them. And if you're still friends at the end, right? Keepers. <laughs> right? You know, you know, you can survive it. There's a guy that, you know, we, he's a really, really good guy, and we traveled over Christmas. We didn't really talk for a while. Uh, after it, it just didn't work out. It, but it's you know that these are good friends, and I had actually some of the, kind of the best friends that I had, had at that year. And it was this funny kind of like Three Stooges sort of deal. I had this guy Andy. He was he was from Northern England, and and, and if he, I went and visited his folks, and it, and it was hilarious because it sounded like they basically were just grunting to each other. You know, it's like, what are you talking about right now? I have no idea. And he was just a goofball, though. He's from Northern England. The funniest guy you'll ever meet. I loved, I loved being around Andy. Well, then, for some reason, there was also this other guy named Simon. And Simon was, he was this quiet Canadian guy. In some ways, he was like a typical Canadian, right? Canadians, uh, there's a, you know, Canadians in here. Politest guy you'll ever meet. Nicest guy you'll ever meet. Uh, I love Canadians, by the way. My son's part Canadian, half Canadian. Um, but the thing about Simon is, uh, man, I just feel like I'm digging myself a hole here. <laughs> I hate everybody. The thing about Simon, though, is that Simon would never really talk. He was always really quiet. But whenever he said stuff, it just came off as being profound. You ever have people around you like that? Right? They just never say anything. And yet when they open their mouth... And I could never quite figure out if he was actually profound or if it's just that he talked so little that everything I thought was profound, right? That whenever he'd open his mouth, we'd all just go, yes, yes, wisdom. I don't know what you're talking about, but wisdom, <laughs> right? Well, we, the three of us, we went through and, and it felt like we were hitting walls all the time. And we went, we saw Hadrian's wall. And Hadrian's this wall that was built by the Romans across the, the northern border of England. It's amazing. I mean, England is full of walls, right? It's like, what are they, did they have nothing to do? These rock walls everywhere, right? You just think, how much time did that take? Miles and miles and miles of rock wall. And, and we, we moved around and we, we went to York and we would see these medieval cities that, that were surrounded by walls. And, and Shannon and I have been to, into Italy and seen these, again, these cities surrounded by walls. But we also hit uh, Berlin, we saw a very different wall. And, and so when we come to walls, we, we sometimes think of places like Berlin and we think walls mean exclusion. Walls have to do with fear. Walls have to do with, with, with the squelching of life. And certainly the wall in Berlin was that. There was a sense that, that, that walls are really the, the way in which we, we, we push other people around, uh, away from us and we, we kind of come back into our own little zone. But, but the other thing about walls, though, is that they, they also provide the kind of structure 
and safety. If you, if you can pull out a little bit, pull back a little bit, they provide structure and safety. So that you look at these cities in England or, or, or throughout Europe and you realize that the only way that they were able to thrive is when they built walls around. It, it, it kept out enemies. It, it, it kept out the elements. It kept out wild animals. And so when they were able to build this wall, what happened within the wall was not, it wasn't about exclusion so much. It wasn't about fear. But it was about creating the safe structure in which inside the walls, life flourished, culture flourished, business flourished, families flourished because they were able to, to move forward in such a way that every single moment of their life, they weren't under threat. Walls can play these two different kinds of roles, can't they? There are structures that can play these two different kinds of walls, of two different kinds of roles. They can push us away, we can hide behind walls, or perhaps they can be used to actually pull us together. Well, as you begin to think about what is it that, that Nehemiah is doing, what I want us to do is we need to t- take walls and think about what that might mean for us so we don't hit walls all the time, and, and we need to expand our vision. What is going on with Nehemiah that his heart breaks over walls? And the people, what is going on? We need to expand our vision. First of all, if we're to understand what it means to not simply retreat and stay back and come in and and just focus with just our people to push away, to go in fear. Well, how can we actually understand walls as something that can actually help us extend out? Well, first of all, we have to expand our vision. As I said, the walls had been destroyed. We read that the walls had been destroyed. The people were scattered or hauled off. What often happened is that the, the, the very smartest, um, kind of the, the, the most educated would be hauled off to a foreign land by that foreign government. And so you would, they had often destroyed kind of the, the structures of society and then left people in a place in which they were often found in disarray. And, and so when we reach Nehemiah, Nehemiah is sitting in the court of this foreign king. And he is coming to, a, in a sense, in a, in a place of, of prominence. But he is in a, a foreign land. And we realize that we look back and that Jerusalem is in, a bad, is in a bad, bad place. And those that have been put over in leadership, if we look in, in um, chapter 2, verses 10, we read that Sanballat, the, Sanballat uh, and Tobiah were the officials. And, and, and really, they were there to rule, but they were not there for the people. In fact, the people's welfare was the very last thing they were, they were concerned about. So when, when Nehemiah hears that the walls have been broken down, what is going on? What, what's, what's the real issue? Well, I think what's the real issue that's going on is that he is concerned with restoring the glory to Jerusalem. That in some ways becomes focused on rebuilding walls. But as you look through the book, if we were to kind of take the long view, what the book's about, we see that it's, it's also about caring for the poor. It's about repopulating the city. It's about setting up leadership. It's about reinstituting worship. That, that everything that Nehemiah does is rooted in his relationship with God. And yet it works out in very, very practical ways. That if we can understand that what God is about, that, that there is a sense that we can have an experience of God's love into our own hearts, that yes, that is true, that yes, God is interested in the spiritual, but that God also has a heart that has a heart that goes from the spiritual out to, to the social, to the emotional, to the physical world that we live in. 
This word glory is one of those, it's a religious word. It's one of those words that sometimes it's hard to get our, our hand, our, our mind around. And I think sometimes it could become a, it could become kind of an anemic word, even though it, they don't go together. Because what glory is, is just something that's personal in my heart, something that I've experienced. And we think it doesn't really go beyond that, that perhaps kind of God, God and our experience of spirituality is really about just some experience within us. And yes, that is true, but it also extends out. And when we begin to understand how, that, how it goes out, we begin to understand a full vision of what glory really is about. That if, I think if we see, if we take from Nehemiah, there's a couple of different levels, and maybe this will help us as we think about how does it mean to, to engage, that yet, yes, there is a spiritual element, and yet there is also an element in which the physical structure, the physical walls of Jerusalem have to be rebuilt so that there can be safety for the people that are living within that city, that, that there are social things, there is social injustice that has to be ratified so that life can thrive. Because here's what's going on. If we understand glory, which has to do with the, the, the weighty presence of God, the tangible presence of God among us, that really glory is attached to this idea of shalom. Shalom, as you guys might know, is, it's this word uh, that often is translated peace. But we, well, often when we think about peace, what we think about is the absence of something, the absence of conflict, right? The absence, uh, we think about kind of a static place. If I could just go to my peaceful spot, right? It's kind of peace. Oh, there's nothing bothering me. It's quiet. Oh, at least there's nobody I'm in conflict. There's nobody that's bo- you know, bothering me. Peace is, it's the absence of something. It's static. Whereas this idea of shalom is this idea that is very proactive. It's moving forward. That, that shalom has to do with the well-being and the flourishing of all of life. From the spirit to everything. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans. He talks about, he uses this really strange, it's this really strange passage because he's talking about, in some ways, uh, personal spiritual things. But he begins talking about how creation is groaning. Creation is groaning for the day in which there is restoration and redemption. That, that Paul goes on in Colossians that we've talked about here. He begins to talk about how that Christ, and this is, it, it, it's kind of crazy for us to think about nowadays, but he's, he's saying, listen, I want you to know that Christ is at the center of all things. He's writing to this Colossian church. And he says, Christ was at the beginning of all things, created all things. He's at the end of all things, and he's redeeming all things. That, that what Jesus is, is insured, that his, what he was about what God is about is not simply uh, about something personal, but he says, I want to restore everything, every principality, every power, everything that is created, I want to redeem and to restore. There's a writer who, uh, I went to this conference, and I, I mentioned him a long time ago. He was great because he was this guy, and he was sharing about, okay, how does my faith interact? And, and he was a used car salesman. Okay, used car salesmen sometimes don't, you don't always think about them in the context of, of faith. But here's this guy, and he, and, and he had a number of dealerships on the East Coast. And he began to get up and talk about how he's wrestled with this. And he said, you know, I think, when I think about shalom, it's helpful for me to begin to kind of put some words to it. And the words he put were these, and I loved it. That where we see shalom, we'll find these things. Truth, beauty, justice, good, and the plenty. Truth, beauty, justice, good, and the, the plenty. 
See, when we begin to, to grasp the fullness, we begin to see how we as a community of faith can begin to put our faith into action. That, that realizing that God's heart wants to extend to, to all of creation, it opens us up to seeing a bigger vision of, of God's glory into places that perhaps we have written off, we've given up on, we, we haven't imagined. See, Nehemiah's heart broke not just because of walls, because he really thought that that was important, because he realized what the walls broken down entailed, how it affected the people, that how the, the, the people fundamentally were at, at, at a place of trouble and disgrace. And when he feels that, when he sees that, he goes, I've I got to do something about it. There's something fundamentally not right. It's not just the way it is. That's not good enough. I, there has got to be something better. This is, this is, it helps us to begin to understand, I think, when we can separate in some ways out, or, or put holistically, that God is interested in everything from the spiritual to the emotional and the social to the, to the physical, to realize that this is not particularly a Christian thing. We don't have the corner on this. This is a human desire. This is a desire that, that, that strikes at the heart of everyone as we look out and we can come up with different reasons for why it is. Different explanations, and yet what we can meet on is that something needs to be done, and, and we need to, to do something about it. That it provides a guide for us as we begin to think about how do we partner with those that might come from a very different place of beliefs or background, but we can agree on one thing, that perhaps what needs to be done is there needs to be something that is built. There are walls that need to be built. There is justice that needs to be addressed. That that we can then join in from our perspective, from, from our perspective, from what we bring into a, a larger conversation of how can we help bring about truth, beauty, justice, good, and the plenty? How can we be a part of partnering with those around us in seeing the common good at work? And so for Nehemiah, it is, he is absolutely fueled by his faith in God, and yet it leads him into this place where he goes, something has to be done about the walls. You know, it's been interesting. Let me a couple of examples throughout the years. I, I was a business major, and I, you know, as I look out, and, and um, I was writing papers and writing management papers, and, and I was reading kind of the latest theory on management, which I'm, I'm sure it's you know they've thrown it out by this point. I don't know, but the latest theory, and the latest theory on management at that time was this. You know, you know, we've been treating people in the past. We were treating people like cogs in a wheel. You know, that they were disposable. They were part of the machine. That apparently doesn't work. You're like, duh. Right? And you're right, and it's, you're like, this is brilliant. They're just, co- two, you know, several thousand years of, of this, and we're just figuring this out. Maybe what we should do is we should treat people like people. You know, it was this, I just remember thinking about it. I was like, what? Where did I hear that before? Hmm. So I began thinking about this, and I began looking at it. You go, well, well, Paul talks about the importance of a body and that, that, that to accomplish something, that the church is a body, that there's a role for everybody, that talk about dignity of persons. And so I began to write my paper. I wasn't trying to, to shove God in there, but I go, here's a great model that helps think about great management. We talk about integrity around people, around persons. And you talk about treating people with respect, finding where their particular role is and realizing that, that one role is not better than the other, that we all have to work together if this is going to happen. There, there's something to add into this conversation on how we can have a management structure that doesn't suck the life out of people. 
It's why we can partner with our friends down at Ray's. As they are right in the midst of beginning to build structures, whether it be social or even perhaps physical things in which life can flourish, in which kids who are, are in very dangerous and precarious situations can begin to move forward. We can join in that and celebrate that and call that out and say, that is part of beauty and truth and the good. There's a, a pastor who's down at, um, he's in Tacoma now, and he's a son of a, of a mentor of mine. And I haven't read his book, but I've been super intrigued by some of the work that he's done in, in what is called new urbanism. As he has thought, how is it that the church can be part of the conversation and thinking about cities and building physical cities, like the physical structure of cities? in which life can somehow flourish. I mean, we've probably all been in cities in which there's, like, there's just something about this place where life seems to just be flourishing. And then other places you're like, this just sucks the life out of me. Vancouver, B.C. is one of those. It's interesting for me. Parks everywhere. You can walk everywhere to it. It's a pain to get across town, traffic-wise. But they've, they've actually said traffic doesn't matter or, or highways don't matter. We're going to focus on building these little boroughs. And it was a wonderful place, actually, to be. It's the... I grew up in the city, or I grew up in the mountains of 20 acres. I never thought I would want to live in a condo, and yet for the first time I got, I could live in a condo if there was a city that looked like this. Eric Jacobson, begin, he, he writes this. The way we design buildings and cities, the way we configure roads and neighborhoods, can say a great deal about our understanding of human nature and the shape of human well-being. But because they, and he, at this point this is a critique on Christians, they have, viewed, they have viewed the really important part of human nature as being spiritual and not bodily. Most Christians have been content to allow a kind of utilitarian commitment to efficiency and individual comfort that guides the development of suburbs and contributes to the decay of cities. You can argue with that if you want. And yet there's something in there. He's not denigrating the spiritual, but he's saying we've got to hold these things together. And there's something we can do in adding into cities developing. This is Bruce Robinson. This is why I would advocate that you go down to Haiti if you haven't gone down. Bruce is brilliant. He's a missionary. He is committed to proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And yet at the same time, he goes, this place has no water. There's no drinking water. There are no jobs for people. We have to figure out a way to have jobs. We have to figure out a way to come alongside it and help the people of Haiti while also giving them dignity and respect. And what is so fascinating, I've shared with this you know, last year, is to be able to see the way, that, the way that he even goes about aid brings dignity and respect to people instead of denigrating people. Side by side, something that grew up out of here, we can agree that, that, that terminal illness and cancer in kids is tragic and should not happen. And so this, this ministry, side by side, popped up in, in, in a way that we can provide a camp for, for one week for families that are going through hell to be able to just have a great time, to have tons of fun, to be able to, to remember for a moment those parts of themselves that perhaps have died and because of that we're able to partner with Children's Hospital we have a great relationship with Children's Hospital yes we might feel like there is more to than just having fun to life and yet at some point it is so important for us to be able to provide a place where we can begin to see truth beauty the good flourish well here's the thing I, those are some examples those are some things that just came to mind but what I would challenge you to do challenge us to do is to ask that question what does that look like for me? If, I'm to, if there is to look out and my heart was to break for anything, 
for something that is broken down in society, some kind of wall that I feel like is broken down, what is it? Talk about it. Ask others about it. Begin to share it. Begin to say, I think this is what breaks my heart. Write it down. Hold it ever before you, even if you think that you've nailed it. What is it that God perhaps is calling you to? And then for us as a community, what is God calling us to? What do you think? Share it. Well, quickly, let me move through a few things because here's what I know is that so often what we can do is if we have an expansive vision, that expansive vision can become oppressive to us, can lead to apathy, can lead to a sense of paralysis because we go, what in the world am I supposed to do? What in the world am I supposed to do about the great evils of the world? I I am totally paralyzed. And again, here is where Nehemiah specifically is our guide. I'm going to give you three things. The first is this, is to, is to listen to your heart and look for those places that it breaks. Oftentimes we run, a, we run away from a sense of brokenness and fear, and yet that is often where we tap into what is really real in life. Where does your heart break? Quickly. If you feel like, man, my heart is dead. Apathy? But you've got to talk to others. Maybe you need to hang out in the, pro- in the prophets' books of the Bible that perhaps you've never opened and see what God's heart is as, he, as his heart breaks over what he sees. Try volunteering somewhere. Try going on a mission trip. Try doing something just to begin to, to get the juices flowing. Take time to listen. Let your heart have an opportunity to simply hear what is going on. It, it, when we're so busy, when we're always filling something in, there's no way we can ever hear what is really going on in our heart. Second thing is this. We see this from Nehemiah. He, we hear that he heard these things, he, he wept, and then he prays for a number of days. And at the end, we, we read this prayer. And I encourage you to, to read that on your own and to go through it. But three things that he does. in which he, it, it, Within the context of prayer, he places himself in a bigger context. He gives time for this before he immediately acts. He does a couple of things. He places himself under. Could you place yourself under? Under the sovereignty of God, the God of heaven, that it is not up to you to save the world. It is not up to us to save the world, though we have a role in it. We have to remember that. Affirm that God is over all and he cares for all. Second is this, is that place yourself in that before we go out and we try to fix the world, we try to move out and, and, and see and, and take on them and, and, and the problems that they created, we need to realize the perhaps the part that we've played. That Nehemiah doesn't immediately go out and start hammering on, on how bad the foreign nations are. He, he immediately starts with confession. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you that have led to where we're at. Where are you in the midst of this before you begin to go out and fix other people? Where is, if we're real honest, the things that we hate out there perhaps might be somewhere in here? Last thing, place yourself among. Nehemiah looks and he says, I am among a bigger story. I am among a bigger cloud of witnesses than me. That There have been people that have been about this before me. There are people that will be here after me. And so when you realize, you place yourself uh, uh, among, in, and under, that you're able to then kind of define in what is the thing that I am called to do at this moment of time, at this particular place.
it, it works out. It works out for Nehemiah in a, in a sense of boldness that he's like, he at the end of his prayer, at the end of chapter one, he says, G- "Give me success," and he's getting ready to move and he's really getting ready to act. And the fascinating thing is that he says, "Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man." You know who this man is? The king of the most powerful nation on earth at that moment. This man. That his confidence comes suddenly not from fearing uh, this person that has the, the power to take his life just like that. He simply is just another man because he realizes that he is under the authority of God and not the authority of a king. And so he now has the confidence to ask what he would never dare ask for before. Lastly is this, is simply wait and risk. That though he's anxious to get moving, he waits for the opportune time and then he risks. He puts aside his comfort, his security, his life, his good standing. He waits for the opportune moment and then he risks. Nehemiah is in a place of power. Nehemiah is in a place of privilege. And yet he throws all that aside and he says, I could get killed for simply opening my mouth. In chapter 2, and we'll focus on this next week more, he basically, in some ways, takes on bad decisions that the, this kingdom has made. He asks the king to reverse his mind. Unbelievable. He puts that on the line. But we'll look at more of that next week. My question is this for us. Nehemiah has a heart to restore the glory of God to Jerusalem. Today, what does it mean for us to have be a part of restoring the glory of God, His peace, to Seattle? What is the role that we are to play? What is the role that, that you are to play? Not to do everything, not to save the world, but simply to be a part of saying, God has called me to do something here, that He wants to see truth, beauty, good, and the plenty flourish in this place, from the very core of who we are, out into the whole of creation. What does it look like? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that, um, for Nehemiah, for his example. Lord, I ask that in our conversations following up, Lord, you begin to stoke in us or remind us or encourage us of the thing that you have laid on our hearts. Lord, I pray that you guide us as a, uh, as a church, a community, as Convergence, as UPC. Lord, what is the role that you have for us within this city? Who are you calling us to partner with? Lord, what is it that you want to do? That, where are the, the walls that are broken down that you, that you want us to, to bring life to? Because you care about it. That it breaks your heart to look at it. Lord, I pray that you lead us. Lord, we want to listen to you and to where you're moving and join you there. So, Lord, uh, speak into our hearts over the, the coming weeks. Guide us and direct us. Open our eyes to the opportunities that you want to place before us. In your name, amen.